c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. of Fat, French, and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. And today we're having a very special Janelle episode. All Janelle episodes are special. They're all special. Um, just like my mother said that I was. But uh, deeply, I got deeply to pick special. the topic, which means we're doing double homicide. Whoop whoop! Let's get some murder up in here! This is, you're not, yeah. you're not allowed to be that excited about murder. Death, 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 death. <laughs> are you excited about other people's deaths or just the sweet embrace of your own? I wish for nothingness. <laughs> You're calling death the way most people call a disobedient dog. Welcome me, universe. <laughs> I don't want you becoming one with the universe. I don't want to, like, <laughs> plug in my phone and get a little bit of Jessica coming through the pipes. I don't I don't need that in my life. I already have enough of that. We, we, we want Jessica to be as, as segregated as possible into a single mortal form. <laughs> <laughs> Concentrated Jessica, just at water. Just, I'm less dangerous when I can't get everywhere. <laughs> even, even small amounts can be dangerous. I was going to compare you to semen, but that's too gross, and I'm not going to do it. And you and I already had a disgusting conversation earlier today, and I can't, I can't go there again. It's just, it's too soon. The wounds are still fresh. No, I'm going to say it. Jessica. A bit musty. This this week's uh, topic is a combination of history and true crime. If you've, you know, we're, we're I think, this is episode 38 now. So mm. you've had a long time, listeners, to distinguish this pattern. But I tend to do true crime topics. And <sighs> Jessica tends to do history topics. I know, I'm really, I'm really blowing the lid off here. Wow. But this topic is a combination of history and true crime. And the first fucking words out of Jessica's mouth when I told her that was that this is basically foreplay for us. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually, like, that That came second. My first response was, wow, it's not even my anniversary. <laughs> We've managed to get 38 episodes in without ha anyone having... Uh, a serious inquiry as to whether we're a lesbian couple, or at least if they do wonder, they're too polite to actually put it into words. <laughs> Which is amazing because, like as as I've I've discovered throughout my life, the longer a person stands next to me, the more likely they are to be misinterpreted as my gay lover. Male, <laughs> female, doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. It's gay. People determine my gender. By what they think the person next to me is. They're like, that's clearly a gay of some sort. And that's a woman. So that must be a lesbian. Like, they're, they're, it's like, like this weird kind of social arithmetic where they're trying to solve for whatever the hell I am. You are N-gay. <laughs> yeah, I am, I am, I'm X. Schrodinger's queer. I'm whatever X is. <laughs> I'm, I'm a quantum queer. I'm a Schrodinger's homosexual. Excellent. Well, now that we've muddied the waters of our... I, we've completely failed to answer the question that you just raised, but, like, whatever. We're... It doesn't need to be answered. Because we have the sexual chemistry of, like, peanut butter and a dead fish. We do. We, we, are, we are as sexually compatible as, like, Neptune and a bullfrog. 
like jamming a tuba in a light socket. It just no, it's not. Those are not two things that go together. Like this isn't so much like trying to match an American like light socket with a European toaster. This is of another order. This is this is this is like trying to like trying to breed a fish with a cantaloupe. <laughs> you're you're not my type. I have a very specific type, which I described to a friend the other day as imagine if Kurt Cobain had put down the shotgun and then done six to seven more years of heroin. <laughs> You do have a type. You're laughing and, and you have a type. Yeah, you're not contesting it. That's the problem. Mm, That's that, that is entirely the problem. <laughs> That's not so much a joke as a very funny way of saying something true. That's a cry for help that's being recorded that is... and broadcast to the world. Somebody save me from myself. We've done we've done so many episodes of this podcast and yet nobody has come for you. <laughs> truly, truly this is the failure of a system. Well, after the Google I... searches I had to do to research this fucking episode, somebody's on their way right now. Yeah. Somebody's in a car. <laughs> yeah, I also have a type and that type is heavy machinery and or tectonic plates depending on what episode you listen to last. If you die humping the subway, I will be mad. <laughs> At best, a tad peeved. You have to stay in your mortal form because it's the only way we can contain you. <laughs> in this form, you, Release me. you can be satiated temporarily with dairy. That's not true if you become non-corporeal. So. See, that's, that's the one thing holding me back from my true destiny of being a malevolent spirit. I just like yogurt too much. Oh, God. Well, speaking of <laughs> malevolent spirits, we're going to dive into this week's topic, which, in addition Ooh. to being historical and crimey, is incredibly Canadian. Dive into it like a huge pot of yogurt. It is. It's Canada Day weekend this weekend, so this is, yeah. this is, some, this is some of the most Canadian content we've ever had on this show. The most Canadian. And we get pretty Canadian. Yeah, we got the ball rolling on this podcast with a lobster-related murder in Nova Scotia. Yeah, and then we moved on to, like, a maple syrup-related theft. <laughs> well, as the title already probably gave away, because you guys have the uh, the benefit of seeing a title, Jessica does not. I just fucking spring this shit on her. <laughs> it's like a surprise party every week. <laughs> with murder. Uh, Except the surprise is death. The surprise is death. We're looking at the life and possible crimes of Grace Marks. So Grace Marks and her trial are the focus of the Margaret Atwood novel and a CBC miniseries now available on Netflix called Alias Grace, which is the most Canadian you can be. <laughs> if Margaret Atwood and the CBC have made content about you, you would have made it. Yeah, that's just, that's peak Canadiana right there. <laughs> all, all that is left to you is to be made prime minister and then to be immediately forgotten the moment you leave office. You're just mad that nobody likes Joe Clark except for you. His head is shaped like a light bulb. When, yeah, when, when you reach this level of Canadian, a winged John A. McDonald descends from on high to carry you off to that great Tim Hortons in the sky. Yeah, after dry heaving for a bit in a bush, he just he lifts you up on golden wings. You go for a rip and have a few darts, and then you go get yeah. your heavenly double-double. <laughs> yeah, you just you look him in the eyes and you say, give her, and he brings you off into heaven. <laughs> We've actually hit that like tipping point where things get when they start to become successful that our audience is now primarily American. Uh, mm. And it's not my doing. We have very little audience based in New York City. It's all it's uh, mm -hmm. California at the moment. Yeah, 
is uh, we're we're real popular in in California. A lot of California. We are big in Cali. So now that we've alienated what is now the majority of our audience, um, the last minute has just been inexplicable seal noises. There's <laughs> clicks and whistles to them. <laughs> it's been Wookie noises. The verbal equivalent of webdings. <laughs> also, I now that we're nobody's here from New York to be defensive about Westchester. I was on a train to Westchester, which is like a white all-white suburb north of New York City the other day, and there was just, at 8 o'clock in the morning, a man on the train to Westchester, staring intently at a laptop that contained nothing but page after page of webdings, and I feel like I saw something I wasn't supposed to see. So if You saw a glitch in the Matrix. If this is our last episode, know that the shadow people took me. <laughs> the man from Westchester was the first son. Oh god, what's going on up there? But for those of you who have never heard of Alias Grace or Grace Marks and aren't familiar with the history of Upper Canada, Grace Marks was a servant girl from the 1840s who was accused of the murder of her employers alongside her co-accused, who was a disgruntled stablehand. I know that doesn't sound like much, but this is the most sensational case of the era in Upper Canada. And it sparked a huge debate that continues to this day about Grace's actual role in the murders, which is sort of the point of Alias Grace. It's what the, the show's examining. Was Grace a willing participant in the murders? Was she a terrified victim of her co-accused? Or did she actually mastermind the whole thing? Um, so we'll get into it. I have just an excessive amount of notes. This sounds like an Agatha Christie novel. It does. It does sound like an Agatha Christie novel. It, yeah, it's, it sounds like an interwar mystery about, like, you know, like, disgruntled servants and, oh, the master of the house has been slain and all the, <laughs> the mistress going-ons in the house and out in the countryside. It is, this is, and I mean, this murder took place 175 years ago, and we're still fucking harping on it. Like, this is our Jack the Ripper, but boring and involving <laughs> servants. Yeah, for any self-respecting country, this would be a footnote. For us, it, 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 is, it, is our, it is our white chapel. Well, we'll get into this because it's filled, chock full of scandal. Absolutely. Gossip rending, really mad. It also touches on people's deep inner hatred and fear of the Irish. Anything that confirms Ooh, that those shifty fuckers can't be trusted, we are all about it. <laughs> and I can say that because both of my parents are half Irish. Yeah, that reminds me of, uh, I have, uh, I have a young woman from South Africa on Facebook. And she's just a little too, she's a white South African. That's important context. I was gonna she's say, hang on. Too I don't know how to ask you, but I need you to clarify something for me. <laughs> she's a white South African. Okay, good. She's just, like, a little too into, like every news story where a black person commits a crime. Yikes. It's just, it's like, I'm like, mmm, mmm. That's a lot. You are, you are too who you are to be doing this. Yeah, you can't, you can't. <laughs> you, you can't do that. Absolutely <laughs> not. Mm, no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Apartheid wasn't that long ago. <laughs> yeah, I, I can call the Irish a bunch of shifty fuckers because one, it's 2018, we got over that a long time ago. And two, my grandmother's it's, maiden it's name was Mahoney. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've got your street cred. And you better not use that to break into my accounts. It's not my security password at all. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, so, Grace, as I've hinted at with uh, generous ethnic hatred, was actually Irish-born. She's not Canadian at all, but God, just give us this one thing. One. Let thing. us have this. She can be. 
Canadian for a day. If you've set foot in Canada, you're Canadian. We just Canada claims Alexander Graham Bell is Canadian, despite being a Scottish mm. man who lived in the United States for most of his life. <laughs> but you fucking we're, died here, so you're so... ours now. We got your bones. You're, you're ours. <laughs> You'll never leave us. <laughs> he he uh he moved to Nova Scotia, so we're never letting him go. Yeah. We're just so desperate for any famous person we can have in a shred of a claim. Yeah. So just to drive that point home, Grace was born in Ireland and the murder she was accused of took place in 1843, which if you're <laughs> if you can math, you know why Jessica's giggling. Canada officially became a country in 1867. This is the 150th <laughs> centennial year. Um or it was last year, but if it's good enough for Canadian content laws, it is good enough for us. Absolutely. We're, we're gonna do this. Give us grant money, I swear to God. So if you're a fan of Margaret Atwood, or the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, or if you just- As you as should As you be. should be, they are excellent. If you just stumbled across Alias Grace on Netflix, you probably think that you already know everything that you need to know about the Grace Marks case. And although Alias Grace does get the basic facts about the case correct, it is still a heavily fictionalized account. So, Margaret Atwood's own opinion of Grace Marks has fluctuated wildly over time. There are no simple solutions to this case. She's obviously read wildly, widely about this case. She probably knows more about Grace Marks than any living person besides me now after spending two weeks obsessively reading about it through the night. And her depiction of Grace Marks in an early work called The Servant Girl is very different from her depiction of Grace Marks in Alias Grace. So even Margaret Atwood can't decide whether Grace is guilty or not. Guilty. Off with her head. Oh, that was quick. That's why we don't let you Let's go- Let's dig her up and execute her again. Oh, this is why none of us will let you take the LSAT. <laughs> if you try signing up for it, you're just gonna start feeling dizzy 18 hours before and then wake up in a bush three days later. <laughs> Not quite sure how you got there. Not not quite sure. Yeah, I've had several people recommend to me to be that I should be a lawyer, and I'm just like, <laughs> no. Give me their names, and I will shoot them. <laughs> not have them shot. Oh. I will personally shoot them. <laughs> Make the trip all the way from New York just to just to execution style deal with some people. <laughs> when they asked me at the border, like, what is the purpose of your trip? To fuck a bitch up. Let me in back in the country. <laughs> I know my right. Let me in. I'm a citizen, damn it. I need to pop a cap in someone's ass. I'm saving you an extradition hearing. Just let me in. <laughs> this is happening. <laughs> so alias Grace, uh, the fictional work, revolves around prison conversations between Grace Marks and her doctor, Dr. Simon Jordan. The character of Simon Jordan is entirely fictional. That never happened. I mean, he's a psychiatrist in a novel that predates psychiatry as a profession, so... Yeah, again, somewhat anachronistic. A little bit. Uh, he's meant to be a proto-psychiatrist. The word is not used, but he, he predates talk therapy. Mm. As is the character of Jeremiah Pontelli or Jerome Dupont, who is a major character in Alias Grace. I won't really get into it because it's not real. Mm. And without giving away too many spoilers for you who haven't watched the show, um, Atwood ultimately settles on an explanation for the murders that is somewhere flirting with the supernatural. It's, it's like halfway between mental illness and the supernatural. But the real case, whatever the solution- Ghost did it. It, it was Bigfoot. He and Maura Murray escaped from the woods. That's a really dated <laughs> reference past. from our earlier catalog. 
go catch up, kids. Um, the real case was probably much more straightforward, even if we don't actually know what that straightforward answer is. So let's get into it. So the reason anyone even knows about this case is thanks to the writings of Susanna Moody, who was a British settler who immigrated to the British colonies that later became Canada. And we also claim her as Canadian because God just let us have this. Just this one thing. We just, just several things. We don't ask for much. It's not our fault. We were a bunch of woods colonies before we were a country. Moody was actually a contemporary of Grace Marks and wrote about her in a book called Life in the Clearings versus the Bush, which just sums up the era so succinctly. Just, that is just such a, a, a pithy title. <laughs> we lived in the I bush. read it now. Then we chopped it down. Now we live in a clearing. The end. That's basically the history of Canada. She is credited with starting several like Canadian literary traditions, which is largely just describing landscapes in almost erotic <laughs> detail. That's what Canadian literature is. Yeah. That's what Canadian literature is. That's what Canadian photography is. That's what Canadian painting is. Just, that and tractors. You just go into the woods, you describe it as if you are describing the naked flesh of a lover, and then you collect your Giller Prize. That's it. There is no, you do not pass go. You do not collect $200. That's, that's it. That's your, that's your Canadian art yeah. career. You, you get your order of Canada and eventually you just, you, you, you take, you become a Senator and no one remembers who you, you are. You take Michael Ondaatje out behind the dumpster and you quietly beat him to death. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, someone once told me like a, an American happy ending is where, like, the hero saves the day, gets the girl, and rides off into the sunset. And then a Canadian happy ending is when the hero survives. That is true. Spring came and we were alive. The end. It's <laughs> basically that's, it. That's what Canadians consider, consider happy. Surviving to die horribly another day. Hooray! Well, Life in the Clearings versus the Bush, which I couldn't read because incredibly it's somehow still copyrighted, um, wow. I know, I was surprised. Who's holding that I, I don't know, a, a non-profit for sad early proto-Canadian literature? I have no idea, but they were like, you need to pay us, and it's like, haha, no. <laughs> Incorrect. Incorrect. Uh, that book is the source of, basically, it's the reason that the Marx case has survived to, uh, the common era. Uh, common era. That's the birth <laughs> of Christ. Let me try that again. The modern era. <laughs> Canada predates the Christ. <laughs> we we, we, we post-dating Jesus. <laughs> so this is how Margaret Atwood first learned of the case. Moody didn't actually know Marx directly or any of the other people involved in the murder case directly, nor did she know anyone who knew them directly, but the account she gives in Life in the Clearings is a third-hand account based on people who knew a guy who knew a guy uh, and a lot of the media coverage that was happening during the day. The newspapers went absolutely wild for this case. So it's a contemporary account, but very much a third-hand account. Even though she was a contemporary of Grace Marks, she wrote this sometime after the case. Mm. So it's also being written from memory. And um, the reason I didn't search too hard for Life in the Clearings versus the Bush is that large parts of it are inaccurate. Oh, I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, it was misremembered. Parts of it were fabricated. She filled in some blanks. Um, so it's, it's one of the big... There's no obvious motive here to, like create a misremembered third-person account from a sensationalist story you heard from a friend of a friend. Yeah, so a large part of the reason um, Atwood has been writing about Grace Marks her entire career, but the reason that her opinion of Grace Marks has changed so dramatically is because she realized that much of what she knew about the case in the beginning was false. 
It's also important to remember that media coverage that came out at the time when the trial was happening is also maybe not a great source of information. Because even in her own time, Grace Marks was the subject of gossip, rumors, and the prejudice that came with being a poor Irish immigrant woman with no education. And this is very much before a lot of journalistic codes of ethics. There are no journalistic codes of ethics. They don't even- they use child labor to sell the papers, and that's the least horrifying thing they're doing. (laughs) You know, like, every once in a while, a a journalist gets pulled into the gears of the big machine, and they just keep printing. (laughs) Everyone's just waiting around to see whether they're going to die of scarlet fever before all of their children do. And people were just fucking- it's it's actually a weird psychological quirk um, that during terrible times, sales of horror material goes up. Horror novels and horror movies do better during economic recessions, probably because, like, it's a weird thing in our broken monkey brains that we enjoy distracting ourselves from our own horrible lives by enjoying other people's horrible lives. So a lot of Mm -hmm. early newspapers, anytime there was a big murder, any kind of big case, they just blew it way out of proportion. Oh, absolutely. And they weren't above making shit up or saying that a source told them. Yeah, like, not a lot of accountability, not a lot of ethics... Very much a a highly competitive anything-goes kind of field. You know, child labor and the blood of journalists being used to grease the wheels excluded. (laughs) I don't know how many journalists were actually turned into lubricant. That just sounds like something. Every other day. Just another journalist gone to put another one on the fire. That just sounds like a dream that you have when you don't put the milk back in the fridge in time. This editor's gone bad. Put him on the flame. (laughs) Oh, dear God. He's forgotten how to spell. (laughs) Yeah. So we'll talk about kind of the spin that the journalists put on it, but it is easy to see Grace Mark's case kind of however you want to see it. It's hard to know whether contemporary descriptions of her are truly objective or if she's being seen through the lens of some sort of bias. But you'll decide for yourself. So there isn't a lot of information available on Grace Mark's early life. Like I've mentioned, she was a poor immigrant servant girl, and so she didn't exactly have a memoirist at her disposal. She lives long before the age of live journal, which is a shame. Because Grace didn't really have much but an early life. Uh, On TV, in the Alias Grace uh, adaptation, she's being portrayed by a 31-year-old actress, but Grace was only 16 years old at the time of the murders. And the information that we do have, yeah, most of the information that comes from this entire episode actually comes from Grace herself. It comes from the confession that was read at Grace's murder trial. Grace gave or um, dictated a confession in jail which was then read back to her and she confirmed it. She herself, I don't, she didn't speak at her in her defense at her trial, but, uh, or at least there's no record that she did in the records that I saw, but her confession was read in court. And uh, the information that we have throughout this episode mostly comes directly from her confession and the confession of her co-conspirator. And her confession is enough to let us know that her early life was not fantastic. No, I don't expect a woman who ends up as a, servant on trial for murder at 16 years old had much of a childhood. No. Uh, I don't think she ended up playing with a lot of trains and raggedy ants. No. Especially not because they weren't invented yet. That was a big thing. The, the failure of Mattel to exist really puts a damper on childhood. <sighs> Just tragic. <laughs> All those people who never got to play with entirely standardized rubber toys. Goddamn. How much they must have felt. I have a hole in me that only Polly Pocket can fill. <laughs> it's probably a nostril. Um, 
<laughs> so Grace was born sometime in July of 1828, so happy 190th birthday, Grace, in the province of Ulster in the northern part of Ireland. She was the third oldest of her parents' nine living children, which is already... Oh, wow. That's not a good phrase. And That's, uh, that's not a great phrase. Yeah, she had uh, four surviving brothers and four surviving sisters, and she had three deceased siblings who were all stillborn. So, I mean, mm. having eight siblings is already kind of enough for me. That's enough suffering. I would tap out. I'm, I'm done. I, I'd never asked for this. <laughs> yeah. Her father, John Marks, was considered an abusive alcoholic... And I really can't emphasize this enough. He was an abusive alcoholic by the standards of early 19th century Ireland. Yeah, we're, we're like, you usually got beatings for breakfast. And that was considered, like, Good a healthy way to start the day. You were a bad parent oh, yeah, if you was... didn't beat the shit out of the little fuckers. Yeah, like, if you did not, and, like, we're not talking, like, oh, you know, like, you know, like, a little bit of a tab or, like, a, a soft pat on the bottom. We're talking a beating. Spare the rod, spoil the child. You gotta beat the shit. We're talking birchings strappings, beltings. You know, we, they just had so many different words for beating the ever-loving snot out of your offspring. <laughs> like, it was genuinely amazing the kind of vocabulary they dedicated to just absolute horrifying child abuse. <laughs> just beat them like they're livestock. No, but, like, if you live in... Ah. Yeah, there's a big difference. Today... Basically, any parent, all parents, we consider to be abusive, shitty parents, and we 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 will shame you online if you feed your child gluten. That's mm. child endangerment by today's standards. So, what was considered an abusive, shitty you parent? You let your child walk alone outside at the mere tender age of fourteen. <laughs> Off with <sighs> your head. Call CPS. Yeah, so what was considered to be an abusive, shitty parent in 1828 is entirely different. And that difference does not work in Grace's favor here. Mm. So that's a rough start. That is an unkind beginning. That is some Dickensian shit. It's not good. So in 1840, when Grace was 12, the family decided to migrate to what was then the British colony of Upper Canada in current-day Ontario. I actually don't know why they decided to move, but I'm kind of assuming it was something along the lines of, like, Ireland was shitty, and North America looked less shitty? I mean, I'm sympathetic to the problem. Mm -hmm. I see the issue at hand. They missed the potato famine by about five years. The potato famine didn't start mm. till 1845, so they didn't come in on that giant wave of Irish immigrants um, from that period. Mm -hmm. Which is when my family came over. Fuck you, the Mahoney's <laughs> ride again! <laughs> Escape! The potatoes have gone bad. <laughs> no one can defeat the Mahoney's. The Mahoney's soldier on across the sea. <laughs> See, I didn't even know that the Irish could migrate. I didn't even think they had wings. I don't even know if that's like a new, unique form of Irish racism. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. You're like, you're like two small <clears throat> moments of distraction from making a Polak joke. So we need to move on. <laughs> the Polish have wings too? Oh dear God, no, I'm ruining you. Um... So unfortunately, the journey across the Atlantic did not go well for the Marx family. Her mother died on the ship before they reached their destination and was buried at sea, which means they basically just checked mom oh, overboard. No. Yeah, that's 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 a very that's a very technical burial. <laughs> yeah, burial in the loosest sense of the term. Like maybe they wrapped her in sailcloth first, but if only if they had the sailcloth to spare. Yeah, you're 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 being tossed overboard. Yeah, it's too bad she didn't have gills, unlike the French. I just, I, you are French. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yes. That means I can't drown you, I guess. New plan. (laughs) So after arriving in Canada, the thoroughly dramatized Marx family moved to what was then called the Township of Toronto. Her father, John Marks, became a stonemason, and in her trial in 1843, Grace Marks said, I lived servant during the three years I have been in Canada. In other words, upon arriving in Canada, Grace Marks became a live-in servant girl for middle-class families, just like the Papaya sisters, who we covered in an earlier episode. Yay! Uh, Despite the fact that, like, I think all of the past took place at the same time, uh, Grace Marks' case actually predates the Papaya sister murders by about 90 years. But, um, yeah, it's a- But, like, the difference between, like, lifestyle in 90 years was much, much less drastic back then. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, the Papaya sisters actually lived closer to us than they did to Grace Marx, but there are definitely a lot of similarities between the two cases. Except for the whole insanity followed by sister incest and eyeball plucking. That part is definitely not in there. Yeah, and presumably the the basting meat with with menstrual blood. I I, I that knew that detail again. would stand out to you. I was just going to say that. It is seared into my mind. If you haven't <laughs> listened to the Papaya Sister episode, put it next on your queued up list. It's one of my favorites that we've done. It's also <laughs> probably the third most disgusting. Yeah, like don't don't eat while you listen to <laughs> don't, it. Don't eat. God. Don't eat. If any, maybe don't even sleep. Yeah, don't, don't just. You should maybe plan this for the portion of your day where your stomach is neither too full nor too empty, and you don't plan on sleeping soon. <laughs> plan to have few to none, bi- no biological necessities you need to immediately address when you're listening to the Papaya Sisters. <laughs> Ideally, just immobilize yourself and stare at the ceiling and think about what you did. <laughs> Put yourself like in a floating like sensory deprivation chamber and listen to the glory that is the Papasa. Just ruin yourself for life. Um, Absolutely, just devastate yourself emotionally, physically, and and probably spiritually. Great. That's the fat French fabulous way. This is not a life blog. I can't say that enough. This is not a fucking self help podcast. Don't listen to anything we Next. say. Quinoa. Absolutely not. You, you. Uh, there's nothing that you're gonna do with quinoa that involves eating it. Spread it all over your flesh. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Re- return yourself to the loam. You are a seed and shall grow anew. <laughs> I need to check on you more. <laughs> they all see me. Okay, great. Uh, so it's not surprising that Grace ended up as a domestic servant. Around 40% of all employed women in Canada at the time were employed as domestic servants. This was one of the easiest ways for immigrant women to find work, and even though wages were not great, when you factored in room and board being included, live-in domestic servants were actually relatively financially well-off compared to women in other low-skill or semi-skill professions. I mean, it's, it's pretty basic math. They didn't have to pay rent. So anything, Mm. or for food, so any money that they get is basically spending money. Hell yeah. Except it it wasn't a great life. Being relatively financially well-off did not mean that live-in domestic servitude was worth it. We went over this in the Papan Sisters episode, but in case you don't obsessively listen to our entire catalog on a loop, or in case you haven't found an appropriate sensory deprivation chamber in which to suspend yourself while you listen to this... For the full experience, um, live-in servants had a pretty shitty lot in life. Yeah, like, this is back in a day and age where labor laws are thin on the ground, 
and and flush toilets know, like, don't exist. And flush toilets don't exist. The difference between someone owning you and employing you is very slender. Yeah, I mean the the difference is that they can get rid of you, and they do frequently. Mm. Um. All the time. So for starters, live-in servants worked incredibly long hours for the wages that they received, and it was a lot of disgusting, back-breaking physical labor. Like... And just demoralizing as well. Yeah, I don't... I feel incredibly put out when I have to, like, put dishes in a dishwasher and, like, put my laundry, which I have worn one time, into a machine that cleans it for me. That is day-ruining for me. That's just a devastation to your skin. I gotta psych myself up. I I live on a fourth floor walk up, and the laundry's in the basement, and having to carry laundry up five flights of stairs is the most off-putting thing in my life right now. Um, yeah, it's you. You basically have like a three-minute training montage prior to ever getting clean underpants. It's the greatest physical hardship I've ever known. Um, servants at the time, though, were manually polishing silver boiling and manually scrubbing laundry and emptying fucking chamber pots as well as like mm. killing poultry and plucking it like no parts of this job are pleasant yes in the in the morning laundry in the evening chicken strangling <laughs> it's a full day i'm just going to get some some real fun like i'm going to like going to empty empty out like my employer's piss and then i'm just going to get some like i'm just going to do some like some chicken snuff it's going to be great Mm. I personally would be eternally grateful to any human being who prevented me from, like, touching lye or chamber pots. Oh, yeah. yeah, lye is, like, an unpleasant... You can dissolve a body in lye. Yeah, and they were using it on the bed linens. And people have. <laughs> not not anyone on this podcast. No, recently. Not recently. <laughs> as far as the police know. <laughs> no, like, it's weird, because, like, given, given the kind of lifestyle I lead, like... Lie as a cleaning implement is the second thing that comes to mind for me. Don't hitchhike wherever Jessica <laughs> is. That's all I can say. She can drive, and hitchhikers don't always arrive at their destinations. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> but, like, you'd think they would be grateful, but families actually did not enjoy having live-in servants in their homes. I mean, today it's a total status symbol if you can have a maid, but people in the day did not like having these girls around. In early Canada, the vast majority of middle-class families wanted British-born immigrant girls to be their servants, but those girls were incredibly hard to find and often had better options. Instead, they usually had to settle for people that they looked down on, Eastern European immigrants or Irish Catholics like Grace. Grace would have been far more in demand than Eastern Europeans and far more trusted because, unlike the United States, Canada is a predominantly Catholic nation, which is why we got a lot of Northern Irish. But yeah, you can thank the French and their guilds for that, Irish. The the clash between Catholics and Protestants that happens in the United States and the anti-Catholic sentiment is not the same in Canada. Canada, to this day, is a majority Catholic nation. Something that a lot of people are shocked to realize. We are down for yeah. the Pope. We like us we, some we, Pope. We, we, get al- we get along with Frankie. He's our bro. I was just in Catholicism for the crackers and also the family compulsory meetings. Mm. The fact that I, I was, was forced to go. For, uh... The Big Mac Daddy of uh, the Vatican. I don't think you're allowed to call the Pope Mac Daddy and still stay in the church. I'm. I'm pretty. I'm. They haven't kicked me out yet. <laughs> Possibly because they have not been listening. It's very difficult to get kicked out of the Catholic Church. You cannot show up for 25 <laughs> years and they just call you lapsed. 
And, like, as far as they're concerned, like, there are a lot of, like, devout atheists who, like, the Catholic Church are like, well, you know, we did dip you in water that one time. You're ours now, you'll, you'll, fucker. You'll be, you'll be back. You'll you'll come back. You'll you'll understand. <laughs> this is just a fave. <laughs> the Catholic Church is the equivalent of, like, an old-timey fishwife who waits for her husband's ship to come in for 30 years long after he's sunk. That's the Catholic Church. They're just, they're waiting on the widow's walk, waiting for your ship to come in, and you're not coming back. Yeah, it, it takes a while before they'll give up on you. <laughs> Which would be flattering, except, like, they're already married to, like, you know, the son of God, and, like, I just can't deal with a three-way at this point in my life. That is almost definitely blasphemy. Which just came out of here. <laughs> we are probably now blocked in several countries. You can't. You legally cannot play this episode of the podcast anywhere in Italy. (laughs) Excellent. Let's just keep this blacklist going. So families were inherently suspicious of non-British people. I mean, the Irish, the Catholic thing was an issue, but the Irish thing definitely still was. Uh, Mm -hmm. Canadians hated the Irish with the best of them, and um, they treat like this is this is a time before Irish is considered white. Yeah. Um, so Irish, Irish and Eastern European servant girls were treated with intense suspicion. Their employers often accused or suspected them of being thieves, criminals, or prostitutes. So this is basically the definition. Or all three, or all, three at, at, all at once. She's, she's stole mm. the penis. She just, she stole <laughs> it right off his body. Job. Oh, dear God. She, she, she just, she just, she just stole his balls. <laughs> <laughs> we're the same person. She took him. <laughs> This is basically, like, the most hostile work environment you can think of. (laughs) Not when you get your penis stolen, when you get accused of being a penis-stealing prostitute. I don't know. I think think going to work and getting your penis stolen is pretty damn hostile. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, she's a dick-stealing whore, that girl, but she polishes the silver real good. Well, like, I, you can see yourself in it. It's amazing. <laughs> no, like, I've, I've literally never gone to work and been accused of being a literal prostitute. No, no, it's, it'd be a first. They weren't quite that they hostile. keep it figurative. Yeah, Staples was a little more friendly than that. Mm. You know, my, my, my work back at the, at, at, like, at, at Autism Canada did not quite get that high strung. <laughs> the worst thing they accused me of being at Staples when I worked in the computer section was a girl. <laughs> and thus unable to fully understand the nuances of, of that technology. If you plug in a printer, your tits explode. <laughs> Science. Just, I don't make the rules. I don't. It's my lady I... hormones. They don't. Mm. They just don't know how to install an operating system. Yeah, like uh, computers, I believe are like uh, they're like um, they're like dream catchers. You're not supposed to touch them when you're menstruating. <laughs> mm. Oh dear God. <laughs> I'm not even going to comment on that one. <laughs> Fun- That's a joke for all the Cree out there. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, our thriving Cree audience. You're welcome. <laughs> it's I, I, Just so you know, I know at least two words in Cree, and one of them is not rude. <laughs> one of them is guy, which means penis. Yeah. Actually, I don't think... Uh, I, the one I know is Tuckai, so it's... Uh... I'm just saying it wrong. I worked with teenagers. They, just, they usually okay. yelled it at me as they ran past. Right, right. Um, so fun fact, though, it was actually middle and upper class families disdain for live-in servants that drove the rapid development of the home appliance industry in the early 20th century. Huh. Isn't that fun? Yeah, they literally just wanted, like, these fucking Irish out of their fucking houses. 
These mm. goddamn Eastern Europeans get the fuck out. See, that was that was the real job killer back in the day. Dishwasher. They wanted them out. Before home appliances, it literally was not possible for one woman to do the work of maintaining a family in a large house and still have some sort of life. So mm. you either you like your options were get a servant or just turn fucking feral. The lady of the house just, you know, like letting her teeth and nails grow yellow and long. When it takes literally 14 hours of labor a day to make sure that the bed sheets can't get up and walk away by themselves. It's not possible for you to be like a functioning wife and mother and go to social engagements and do all those things and go visiting and not have your house just turn into an actual dumpster. Either either lice it like lice, home life or an adequate amount or, or an adequate amount of sleep. Or choose one. letting a young Slavic girl live in your house. Ugh, perish the thought. God, good God. So appliances like washing machines are the only thing that made it possible to replace live-in servants with an unpaid housewife. So, with all this environment, abuse of servant girls was common, and it's not really hard to see why. I mean, through yeah. hindsight's twenty twenty, but you had very young teenage girls, many of whom were immigrants and had very shaky status in this country, going to live full-time with complete strangers who have total control over them and see them as lesser human beings. Yeah, that sounds like an excellent, excellent way to just breed rampant abuse. Yeah, like, not many people would let their 13-year-old daughter go live full-time with another family who work her 14 hours Absolutely a day. Absolutely not. That's not happening. No. Especially a family that hates her. And, like, and yet that in of itself, by modern... Like in like by modern culture would be considered abuse. Yeah, absolutely. Like just that. Just would the be hours enough. and the like work. Just the hours and the work. You would get your child taken away. Absolutely. Um, letting her go live with strangers. Just mm. that's just the cherry on top. So there was extremely high turnover for servant girls. Um, women typically who worked as live-in servants would be living with several families. They'd be with one family a couple months, and then they'd move, and they'd move again. It's like the touring circuit, but with piss pots. Basically. Just a piss tour of Toronto. Which I guess you can probably still get if you go to Young Street at the wrong hour, but... Yeah. You can have that slogan, Toronto Tourism. You can have that for free. That's it's on us. On us. Um, so women who had literally any other options did not work as live-in servants. Mm. Just to give you an idea of how bad it was, as the 19th century went on, it became increasingly common for domestic servants to live outside the employer's homes. Again... Room and board at the employer's home was the only thing that made their wages worthwhile. Women were- That was the main part. Yeah, women were literally choosing to live in near poverty, paying rent and board on their own terms, rather than live with their abusive employers. Mmm. That strikes me as an unhealthy labor market. Mm. Yeah. So, think about what it's like to be Grace Marks when she first immigrates to Canada, because she's 12. She's literally 12 years old. She's had a lifetime of nothing but abuse. Her mother just died on a fucking boat. And she's living in the homes of complete strangers and doing backbreaking domestic chores for over 12 hours a day. She's an- Yeah, she's an Irish immigrant in a time when Canadians hated the Irish, and she has no education and no other prospects. So, today, this situation is literal child trafficking. Yeah. This is- Like- this is so illegal. Somebody's going to prison if this happens. And she wasn't immune to high turnover either. In three years, she worked for at least six different employers, which is a lot of moving, which is yes. stressful in and of itself. So she's not having a great early life. 
Yeah, like, like in this modern day and age, you cannot just, like, rent or, like, import an Irish girl. No, you can't just fucking buy an Irish off the internet. Yeah. You can buy- You can't just buy an Irish, Irish 13-year-old. You can't. You can buy an adult Asian woman to be your wife, which is why I have Auntie Kung Pao in my family tree. <laughs> That's- I'm so glad my family do not listen to this. But you cannot <laughs> buy an Irish child. Asian adult woman? Apparently, yes. It's been managed. I've seen it done. Irish child, Apparently, no. that's acceptable. <laughs> Legally, if not, if, if not by any other means. I mean, it's been a couple years. They haven't deported her yet. So, in June of 1843, Grace was hired by a shoemaker named Thomas Watson, who lived on modern-day Queen Street West, which at the time was known as Lot Street, just in case we have a Toronto audience that gives a shit. In which case, hi, both of you. Hello! How is Toronto? Oh, it's like New York, but worse? That's what I thought. <laughs> Fight me. Fight me, both of you. Uh, Watson- You've gotten salty since you've been away. I have. It's all the almost dying in front of a taxi and also paying too much to live here. This, it's cognitive dissonance. You have to justify it. Everything is cockroaches, rats, and overpriced that I'm never leaving. You can't make me. You fucking love it. <laughs> I do. You love your new dumpster city. I'm gonna go lick it and then die. <laughs> I'm gonna get like eight kinds of tetanus and am I gonna get my jaw's gonna lock. I can't afford to treat any of it. Woohoo! Woo! Um, so Watson used to get visits from a woman named Nancy Montgomery who worked as a housekeeper for a wealthy farmer named Thomas Kinnear who lived on Young Street in Richmond Hill which is just outside of Toronto. Again, this has all been geography porn with Janelle. Da -da 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 -da. Nancy Montgomery basically stole Grace out from Thomas Watson, so she offered Grace $3 a month. Whew! Hot I damn. paid literally more than that for coffee this morning. <laughs> um, and you could have just bought yourself an Irish girl. <laughs> damn, for a month. Rent an Irish. Just a month worth of Irish child. <laughs> oh, dear. Inflation has been quite impressive over the past few centuries. Just saying it makes me want to go turn myself in at the police station. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like I should like walk into the next room and find Chris Hansen sitting there by my table. Just you know, asking me to sit down and have help myself to a cookie. <laughs> oh god. Uh, I mean, in fairness, she's now a she's now an adolescent. This was the month before she turned sixteen. Oh, that makes it so. Much it doesn't. Better. It's not in any way better, but I need this. I need it to be better. <laughs> uh, in her confession, Grace seems to imply that this was a pay raise because she accepted the job right away to come work at Thomas Kinnear's house. Mm -hmm. She went and toured the Kinnear home and agreed to be hired on starting at the beginning of July eighteen forty three. And in addition to Nancy and Grace, Thomas Kinnear employed one other servant, a new stable hand named James McDermott, who had been at the house for about a week and would eventually become Grace's co-accused. Aw, that's so sweet. It's... You know, bonding with your new bonding with your new employer, bonding with your new colleagues, you know, just getting really comfortable around the office. Murdering your employers. Murdering together. That's great. Yeah. Murdering them both. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so there isn't a lot of information available on James McDermott. As with Grace Marks, most of what we know about him comes from his own confession presented at trial. But what we do know is that at the time of the murders, he was 20 years old, and like Grace, was an Irish-born immigrant. He had immigrated to Canada at the age of 14, six years before the murders, and he started out as a waiter working on the steamships that used to travel between Montreal and Quebec City. Which is kind of fun. That's a fun... It's a very 1840s job. That is... 
waiting on a steamship between Montreal and Quebec City. It's a lot. That is, that's a lot. I know. I had to, I had to look it up. I was like, were there really, were there really steamers that ran? There sure as fuck were. Absolutely. Um, only way to travel. In the year 1840, he then joined the 1st Provincial Regiment of the Province of Lower Canada, which is a lot. Mm. Not as a soldier, but as a servant of Captain Alexander MacDonald. And, like, our our listeners probably do not know the difference between Upper Canada and Lower Canada. Uh, Upper Canada is vaguely Ontario. Lower Canada is vaguely Quebec. Quebec is actually further north than Ontario. It's just that the reason why it's upper is because, like, the British liked... Ontario better, and it was Anglophone. Because That's why. the Anglophones are snots. This is true always. Always. <laughs> yeah. And as the descendant of Irish immigrants and the descendant of French immigrants, fuck you, England. <laughs> <laughs> Goddamn. <laughs> yeah, I can't talk. My mother's British. But he's... <laughs> uh... I Elizabeth is lovely. She is. Though. She's great. She doesn't listen to this podcast, thank God, or I would be retroactively grounded for all the things I've admitted to. But <laughs> yeah, Upper Canada and Lower Canada are basically just sideways Canada and also sideways Canada. They're next to each other. They're not up and down. Yeah. What they're they're no. left Canada and right Canada would be more appropriate. But yeah, Upper Canada is firmly wedged beneath Lower Canada. Just I don't know, guys. We named place fucking Manitoba, Nunavut, Saskatchewan. We can't name things. No, we're not good at this. We're not good at this. So the regiment that he joined disbanded two years later in 1842, and this time he enlisted as a private in the Glengarry Light Infantry Company. He was stationed at Coteau de Lac, Quebec, with 75 other men. That company disbanded on Mm. May 1st, 1843, which is just a few months prior to the murders, and McDermott was discharged. So after being discharged from the military, McDermott came to Toronto to look for work and just kind of bummed around the city for a while, living off of his savings. After a while, he gave up and decided he was going to go live in the countryside near Newmarket, which is, that's not something that prosperous young men are looking to do these days. No. Uh, And on the way, he heard that Thomas Kinnear was looking for a servant, so he swung by the house, spoke to Nancy, and got the job. Not a lot of resumes, he just kind of came by. (laughs) Just stopped by, they checked his teeth. Looked at his hooves. And he moved in. This all kind of leads us right to the murder itself, because it happened right away. There's not a lot of time between them moving in and the em- their employers getting the absolute shit murdered out of them. So Grace Marks and James McDermott were the only witnesses to the murders, because everyone else in the house died. <laughs> so unfortunately for history and true crime nerds, which is us, they gave extremely different accounts of how the murders of Thomas Kinnear and his housekeeper, Nancy Montgomery, took place. Hmm. At this point in history, forensics was sort of at the, like, just kind of eyeballing it stage. Yeah, it, just, it feels like this might be a boot print. That sure is blood. That's hmm. it. Gross. That's all we got. So it's kind of difficult to say whose version of events actually matches up to the crime scene. I mean, this is, we don't even have crime scene photos. Like, it's literally just, like, lists of people. Descriptions and drawings. So in the interest of fairness here, we're going to look at both versions of the story. Uh, I'm not going to read both of their testimonies in their entirety, but I will give you the highlights. And if you want to read the full records from the trial, they're available online from the Toronto Public Library, which is lovely. You you really want the blow-by-blow. You want the, 
all the action. You want the news reporter like, oh, and then he stabbed them here, and then sprayed across the wall. You know, like, that is available. If you want to read several pages of run-on sentence separated by commas, knock yourself out. I already did. Mm. The the punctuation was apparently something they eschewed in the 1840s. Keep saying 1940s. Yeah, like, if if you've ever read some Conan, yourself some Conan Doyle, it mostly holds up, but, like, Wow, that punk punch. They life. liked their commas. Um, they they liked their sentence long and running. Yep. So we'll start with Grace's story. Just like their eggs. That's disgusting. Eggs are gross. <laughs> Ew. I've been banned from eating eggs in front of several people. That's disgusting. Also, I was at a including my mother. I was at a lesbian club the other week, and Obvious. in in the Lower East Side, and they served raw oysters, and I just mm. too much. Wow. Dial it back. <laughs> really on the nose there, That's, gals. You've, you've got it at an 11, you need to dial it back to like an 8. <laughs> You're also gonna fucking kill me if I kiss anyone at this club, so... <laughs> I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to... I'm going to perish far from home across the sea. Because a lady with oyster breath got a bit too close. Yeah, I'm either ending up at her place or at Mount Sinai Hospital Emergency Room. <laughs> It's like playing fucking lesbian roulette. It's fantastic. Um, so according to Grace, Nancy Montgomery didn't particularly like James McDermott, and he was already on thin ice when she arrived at the house. Again, according to Grace. Her confession reads, and I quote, Everything went on very quietly for a fortnight, except the housekeeper several times scolding McDermott for not doing his work properly, and she gave him a fortnight's warning that when his month was up, he was to leave, and she would pay him his wages. He often after this told me, yeah, he often after this told me that he was glad he was going, as he did not wish any longer to live with a parcel of whores. I actually Ooh, say what you really. I mean. actually can't be sure that that word is whores because it is actually censored out in the original confession. <laughs> in the court documents, they have W space space a bunch a bunch of lines. Uh, so I assume it's whores. I can't think of anything else that would go in there, and I have quite the vocabulary of swearing. I mean, like as as a prolific connoisseur of the obscenity, I can't imagine what else you'd put. It's there. gotta be. Also, that like one little passageway has like twenty seven commas. <laughs> Not in places that make any sense. Just all in a row, like you're to your grandma wishing you happy birthday in the most sinister way possible. You know, like, hey, grandbaby. Duh, like, comma, comma, comma. You know, like that thing that old people do where, like, they sometimes use, like, triple ellipses in really weird places or, like, triple commas as ellipses? Oh, yes. And, like, they just make regular conversations sound, like, deeply sinister. They're like, hey, Jessica. Just wondering how you're doing. I was gonna say, does your grandmother Can you get some eggs? Does your grandmother just call <laughs> you up and say happy birthday, you parcel of horse? <laughs> I mean, she means it lovingly. <laughs> um McDermott allegedly told Marx that he would quote have his satisfaction before he left. Which could mean a it, lot. It of could things. mean a lot. I was like, he's just gonna hate fuck Thomas Kinnear. That's what's gonna happen. <laughs> gonna look him in the eyes while he does it. They're gonna have a night of just disgusting whisper. love. <laughs> He's gonna leave him in the wet spot covered in shame and semen. You've really thought about I this. Too, just, I don't know where any those things came out of my mouth and I just couldn't stop them. This just a, a vicious, vicious, vicious hate fuck. Just in full view of the mist. This is an R-rated podcast. Um, well, that's the thing. Wink. Thomas Kinnear was not married. 
This mm. is this is we'll get into this, but this is the source of some scandal. Ooh. Right, we're getting into it right now. Look at this timing. McDermott told Marx that Nancy Montgomery and Thomas Kinnear were secretly lovers, which would have been absolutely scandalous at the time. Hmm. At the time, even now. Thomas Kinnear was a wealthy farmer who was of much higher social standing than Nancy Montgomery. She was his housekeeper. And in his social circles, one could not marry a lowly housekeeper. Heaven forbid. Also, they were unmarried. That was scandalous Mm -hmm. at the time. Uh, Nancy Montgomery had borne one illegitimate child out of wedlock before. This is noted a couple times. I don't actually know if it was Thomas Kinnear's or where the fuck that child ended up. But she had something of a reputation. Hmm. Um, she had a baby. <laughs> yes, yes, Jessica. She a had a, she had a baby. <laughs> um, I don't want to have to explain to you where those come from. Just know that she was being a filthy little whore. <laughs> all I've all I've learned from reading old timey histories is that you've ever had a child. You're just you are a fallen woman. You are, you are, you are... Brimming an, with an, slut. An unclean, an unclean... What, what's it? God. Yeah, this was an era with prude moral standards, and people were already a little uneasy about the idea that adult male bachelors were keeping paid live-in servant girls and women in their homes. This was already something they already sort of had to turn a blind eye to. Admittedly, I'm uncomfortable with that too, but I don't think it's for the same It's for different reasons. I mean, (laughs) it's for for adjacent reasons, but for different Uh, reasons. Very adjacent. Uh, So having one dude admit that he was just full-on nailing the housekeeper kind of threatened the whole system. Makes it wobble a bit. Yeah. But it wasn't really a well-kept secret because some of Kinnear's friends definitely alluded to it or even just openly testified about it during the trial. Kinnear didn't often socialize in upper social circles because of this. Mm. So, according to a friend of Thomas Kinnear's, actually, Kinnear was dying of some unknown illness at the time of his murder. I mean, when he was murdered, he was dying of murder. (laughs) Otherwise, he would have just bucked tradition and married Nancy. But I'm not seeing why him dying is a a problem. I don't know. Honestly, if, if he is dying, like, wouldn't it make sense for him to marry... Yeah, then she gets his shit. Has a thing for then she gets his shit, right? And also, like, you're letting her I be mean, like, branded a fallen harlot by the rest of the neighborhood. Make an honest woman of her. Yeah, you're like, if you're gonna die anyway, you might as well do her a solid and make sure she's well taken care of. Her. You can take the hit to your social reputation. You're gonna be dead. Apparently not. So apparently, you don't need it. Apparently, Grace Marks was fascinated by the idea that those two might be lovers, so she decided to investigate for herself. This is all noted in her testimony. Eventually, she figured out that the rumor was probably true, and this is fucking true. This is how she figured it out, because Nancy Montgomery never slept in her own bed when Thomas Kinnear was home, which. Wouldn't have been too fucking hard to figure out because Nancy Montgomery always had Grace sleep in her bed with her when Thomas was away. Ooh. It was a different time. Yeah, that just seems pretty obvious. Yeah, it's she's it like, she's like, all right, how do I well, figure she's out? Never here. Like I'm gonna investigate. I sleep like, in is... her fucking bed when Thomas yeah. is not home. Like this is this isn't so much an investigation as like basic tracking of someone's movements when you live with them. This would be me like saying like, 
I'm going to investigate what my roommate gets up to when he leaves every day at 8 o'clock. He goes to work. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. he's, he's at work. There were pickles. <laughs> then I ate the pickles. Now there are no pickles. This is a mystery. I must solve it. I'm on the case. <laughs> yeah, this is probably as good a time as any to mention that Grace Marks probably, maybe, wasn't too terribly bright. Really? Yeah, every surviving description of her mentions that she was incredibly good-looking, but, quote, totally uneducated and completely expressionless. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite a Yelp review. Yeah, in Alias Grace, Grace Marks is portrayed as very uh, measured, clever, manipulative, possibly this incredible mastermind. But in reality, I suspect that she probably wasn't terribly bright. No, because, like, she's a malnourished, poorly treated 15 to 16 year old impoverished illiterate. Yeah. Uh, also, she wore clothes she stole from her murder victim to her own murder trial before, no. at which she pleaded not guilty. <laughs> so this wasn't just, like, her, like, you know, like, making an avant declaration of guilt. Like, she literally did not think this through. No, I, I suspect, personally, that Grace Marks might have been a few bulbs short of a Christmas tree. Mm. But, I mean... How do you believe guilty you're on, like, not guilty your honor, wink. Yeah, she wore her murder victim's clothes to her murder trial. Not, it didn't make a good impression. Hmm. No, that wouldn't. So, a week after Nan- it, That's a best of faux pas. It's, it's, wear your own goddamn clothes, Grace. It's merely etiquette. It's really hard to argue that you didn't murder somebody and steal all their shit when you show up and they've been murdered and you are wearing their stolen shit. Yeah. Puts a damper on your defense. It's a bit of a stretch. So a week after Nancy announced her intention to fire McDermott, he approached Grace and told her that if she promised to keep it a secret, he would tell her what he was planning to do with Nancy and Thomas. Which, no. Honey, No. Honey, no. Grace promised she would keep the secret. Because, oh god, mm. to be 16 and that naive again. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, 16-year-olds believe it when a fellow 16-year-old tells them that he can totally pull out on time. So, you know, he can't. He, like, like, the amount of trust, like, you know, like, older, like, older man of, like, roughly the same social standing, quite a bit. Yeah, he's literally just like, I'm about to get fired, I'm gonna do something to them, but you've gotta promise to keep it a secret. And she's like, okay. Shh. Okay. Well, that sounds just dandy. McDermott told her that Thomas was planning to ride into the city in a day or two and bring a large amount of money with him. McDermott's plan was to kill Nancy by smashing her in the head with an axe and then strangling Ooh. her while Kinnear was gone and then shoot Kinnear with a double-barreled gun as soon as he came home. So, I mean, he's got some variety in here. He's got three weapons in this plan to kill two people. I mean, it seems overly complicated to me. Like, I like a more straightforward, minimalist double kill. He's a regular jack-of-all-trades. You just hit him with your car and dissolve him in the woods. It's easier to dump it out that way. Disgusting. <laughs> Don't worry, I'd never dump a lie in the woods. It's bad for the forest. And also for the human that is now liquid inside of it. And that too. McDermott said he would then take all the money and valuables from the house and flee to the United States. Grace said in her testimony that McDermott made her promise to assist him with all of this. 
Yeah, but you don't have to do it. Yeah, that's... Like, even by her own confession, this sounds terrible. This is a running theme in this. Like, Grace's confession is very detailed in that she gives us often uh, paraphrases of exact conversations. She's telling us some very specific information about what was said and what was done and in what order. But she never really gives us a fucking clue as to why she went along with any of this. It's objectively insane. Oh, yeah, it's nuts. There's no reason, like, she she doesn't owe him anything. She hasn't even known him for, like, two months. She has no reason to go along with any of this. I didn't exactly, like, love all my supervisors at Staples, but if one of my coworkers came up to me and was like, yo, do you want to crush that guy to death in the fucking box crusher out back? My first <laughs> thought would not be, yes, please, sir, let's yeah. commit a murder. Yeah, like, my my first response, well, would not be an explicit no, merely because, like, a man has just expressed the desire, the sincere desire to m- murder an acquaintance of mine. Uh, I, I don't think I should let on right away that I'm not into that. But, like, my response would be a very couched, like, oh, that's interesting. You just wait here. I'm going to go check on the stock in the back. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the response you get when a man hits on you on the train at three o'clock in the morning. Like, you're like, all right, rejecting you probably means that I die here. But I'm not going to say yes either. No, you don't say yes. You let him talk a little longer and then you sneak away. Technique. You've got it nailed. Uh, on Thursday, July 27th, Thomas Kinnear left for the city at around 3 p.m. McDermott approached Grace and announced that he planned to kill Nancy that night, but Grace said, I persuaded him not to do so that night. I'm not adding my own emphasis here. The word that is in italics in the original text. I persuaded him not to do so that night. Different night, dude. Not tonight. I got a headache. No, you know, it's just, it's it's late. I'm very tired from working working my servantly duties. Not tonight. We'll murder her tomorrow. Great. Grace slept in Nancy's bed with her that night, and after breakfast the next morning, Nancy instructed Grace to go tell McDermott that his time was up that afternoon, and that Nancy would pay him the wages she owed him. Grace relayed this information to McDermott, and according to her confession, quote, He said, Damn her! Is that what she is at? I'll kill her before the morning. And he said, Grace, you'll help me as promised, won't you? And I said, Yes, I would. <laughs> I don't know how much enthusiasm the real Grace oh, had, boy. but I mean, you're agreeing to a murder, so you gotta be chipper. It's first thing on a, first yes, thing in the morning. Would. Yes, I would, sir. I can understand why they gave her three three dollars raise for the position. She seems gung ho, chipper. She's incredibly chipper. That's the voice I usually reserve for when someone wants to go get pie. <laughs> yes, I would like pie. <laughs> Absolutely. And I would like to cave in a human skull, please. Oh man, you want you you want to kill the woman I've been sleeping in the same bed with for nearly a month now? Absolutely. Let's do it. Uh, yes, I would. Would I ever? <laughs> Absolutely. McDermott told Grace to go back to Nancy and say that he wouldn't be leaving until Saturday morning. Which I guess there's she doesn't record her reaction, but she seems to have gone along with it. That evening, a neighbor boy named James Walsh, because everyone in this fucking story is named James. Um, stop by with his flute, and Nancy said we might as well have some fun as Mr. Kinnear was away. Nancy said to McDermott, quote, You have often bragged about your dancing, come let us have a dance. He was very sulky all the evening and said he would not dance. That's, that's <laughs> directly from Grace, I did not make that shit up. 
Wow. Do people just, like, come by with a flute? Yeah, people just fucking show up with instruments, man. I'm from the Maritimes. People just, they just rock up with some wooden spoons and that's an evening. Yeah, you flip over, flip over a garbage tank can, we're gonna have ourselves a hoedown. Yeah, and also, like, this is an era where you can't just put on your iPod. You've literally got to wait until the neighbor's kid gets good enough at the recorder that you can rock out in the kitchen. Hell yeah. Just... Gonna, gonna listen to some hot crust buns. Mm, nothing but green sleeves all night long. Whoop, whoop. So everyone went to bed around 10 o'clock that night, and McDermott told Grace that he intended to kill Nancy during the night by striking her in the axe... Uh, striking her with the axe in her bed. Grace asked him not to do it because she'd be fucking sleeping in Nancy's bed that night. He might miss Nancy in the dark and hit her by mistake. He agreed, but said that he would kill Nancy first thing in the morning. He's really relentless. One-track mind. Oh, you know how men are. They're just only ever thinking about one thing. Murder. Murdering the housekeeper. (laughs) (laughs) Men only want one thing, and it's fucking disgusting. Killing the hired help. Murdering the housekeeper? Yes. (laughs) So Grace said she got up early the next morning on the Saturday morning and went into the kitchen where McDermott was cleaning the shoes. This is in this transcript. I didn't realize this was a task that male servants had to do, but there you go. Quote, he asked me, where was Nancy? I said she was dressing and I said, are you going to kill her this morning? He said he would. I said, McDermott, for God's sake, don't kill her in the room. You'll make the floor all bloody. Exact quote. She gave this to the thing. This is something that she fucking admitted and signed. Oh, boy. For God's sake, don't kill her in the room. You'll make the floor bloody. It makes her sound cold-blooded. Like, I would never admit to this. Yeah. My goodness. Apparently she took home cleanliness very seriously. She seems like... And, like, it's like the thing she focuses on is just like, Oh, no, that would be inconvenient, James. Oh, no, not in the... Not not on the good floor. The sheets will be sticky. blood everywhere. Absolutely Mm. not. You're just cleaned. I'll have to clean them, James. You just cleaned all the shoes. Naughty James. Naughty, naughty James. Naughty McDermott. It goes on, quote, Well, says he, I'll not do it there, but I'll knock her down with the axe the moment she comes out. Grace then says in the testimony that she went into the garden to, quote, gather some shives. I'm assuming that this is a typo and that she meant chives because literally the only yeah. the only thing that comes up when you Google gather some shives is just copies of this testimony. So... <laughs> Either it was a mythical plant that lived in Grace Mark's head, or it was just chives. Yeah, this is this is just a typo or a mispronunciation of some kind. When she went back into the kitchen, McDermott was cleaning the knives, and Nancy had come out and instructed Grace to get breakfast ready and go to the pump for some water. Quote, I went to the pump, and on turning round, I saw McDermott dragging Nancy along the yard leading from the back kitchen to the front kitchen. This was about seven o'clock. I said to McDermott, I did not think you were going to do it that minute. He said it was better to get it done with. He said, Grace, you promised to help me. Come and open the trap door and I'll throw her down the cellar. I refused to do so, being frightened. Presently, he came to me and said he had thrown her down the cellar. Like, it's just, it's also blasé. It's incredibly blasé. And I mean, I'm reading it in a flippant tone of voice, but really, there's not much to it. Like, there's no description of how it happens. She's just sort of like, ah, and then she was dead. Yes. And then this, it's, it's very like first year like english student like you know like sort of listing events in a very beige prose kind of it's very matter of fact mcdermott then goes up to grace and asks her for a handkerchief when she asked him why he wanted one he said never mind and told her that nancy wasn't dead yet grace gave him a piece of white cloth and walked with him to the open trap door from where she stood she could see nancy lying at the foot of the stairs 
McDermott told Grace she could not go down to the cellar before climbing down himself and shutting the door behind him. He came up a few minutes later and told her that Nancy was dead and that he had put her behind the barrels in the cellar. McDermott then threatened Grace, saying, quote, Now I know you'll tell, and if you do, your life is not worth a straw. Grace replied, quote, I could not help you kill a woman, but as I have promised you, I will assist you to kill Kinnear. So she's like, I pussied out, but I'll get the next guy. <laughs> woman, no. That's immoral. Absolutely not. I will not. Will I murder an innocent man in cold blood? Yes, I will blow his Absolutely. fucking head off. Just point me at him. Not a blink. <laughs> After the murder of Nancy, McDermott ate some breakfast, but Grace says, I could not eat anything. I felt so shocked. This statement actually stands out to me because it's pretty much the only time we even get a glimpse of how Grace felt about any of this. Yeah, like she never mentions any emotional reaction prior to this. But even this is kind of weird. It's like, you felt shocked? Like, yeah, probably, but like... Did you not? It's weird yeah. In the context of you knew he was gonna do Did it. Did you not think he would really follow he told through? You repeatedly. Or was it bloodier than you thought it would be? Like what? What's going on here? Yeah, like what about it shocked you? Yeah. Throughout her testimony, which is pages long, she never gives any clues as to why she participated in any of this. There's no hint of a motive. Mm -hmm. She's just listing like, off. She goes shit. through. Yeah, she goes through every action one by one, but never says. Like she never answers the question of why. No, it's like she's narrating an afternoon at the fucking bank. She gives yeah. no clues as to why she would want to murder her employers or why she would agree to assist McDermott. She doesn't even indicate if she likes him. She appears Absolutely completely not. indifferent to everyone and everything happening around her. It's like she just goes along with the first thing you ask. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no emotion to it. There's no meaning to it. There's no evaluation of, like, the value of these things. Like, 16-year-olds yeah. aren't really great at predicting the consequences of their actions, which is evidenced by any photo of me at age 16. But, like, Grace, even if she wasn't, like, the sharpest fucking crayon in the box, uh, she has to realize that murdering her employers would have catastrophic consequences for her. I mean, even if they had gotten away with it, it would have meant losing her job, losing her home, and then fleeing the country with a man she barely knew. Like, why? Mm -hmm. What does she stand to gain from that? What does she yeah, want? like, she's the most, and, like, the most obvious person who's gonna get blamed is them. Yeah, and, like, she, she get, I guess, some economic benefit out of this from their stolen stuff, but she doesn't really even seem to indicate that that's why she's doing this. And no. she's doing this with McDermott. She'd be fleeing with him, and there's no indication of how she felt. Like, we have her words, but it's just sort of blank in terms of her perspective. Especially because, like, not to not to spoil it too much, McDermott throws her right under the fucking bus in his ter testimony. Oh, I'm shocked. And it wouldn't have been very difficult for her to say that she was afraid of him or that she felt threatened by him, but she doesn't really portray no. him as- like, that's a pretty easy case to make. Yeah. She doesn't paint Thomas or Nancy in a negative light, even though she could have easily testified that they were abusive. It was pretty well known at the time that live-in servants were often abused, and they were too dead to say otherwise. Literally, like, she is the only person who is not dead who come like who could make like a reasonable claim towards innocence. Like she's sixteen, she's very young, very vulnerable, she's a young girl. Like it would be very easy for her to just paint anybody else in this situation as a victimizer and herself as a victim. Yeah, she doesn't even really paint McDermott in an unflattering light. 
his testimony is no. much more critical of her than her testimony is of him. She doesn't seem to have no. feelings about anything at all. She just seems to sort of blindly take orders from the first person who gives them like she's a fucking murderous Roomba. Yeah, like it's 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 like not even just like an automaton, but like just like sort of like a kind of dumb automaton. She's just bopping around the house looking for someone to tell her what to do. Yeah, and like the moment she the moment she encounters a ledge, it's all over. Just stares her one. That's why she couldn't get into the basement. God damn. Grace said that after breakfast, McDermott went over to a neighbor's house to borrow some gunpowder since they were fresh out. And the neighbor actually confirmed this at the trial. So I mean, not great planning there, buddy. No, that's that's creating quite a trail. You couldn't have planned this ahead of time. No. What's even funnier is that McDermott only had one bullet on hand, so he carved a second one from a piece of lead he found lying around the house. That's a whole lot of 1840s. Oh, he's just real handy. Yeah, he's just, he only had one ball, I guess, at the time. And so he just found a piece of lead just chilling somewhere. Not that kind of ball, you child. <laughs> the other one got stolen by a prostitute. He's very sensitive. <laughs> Broken you. Yeah, so he, he fucking, at least, I'm kind of insulted. Because if I'm ever murdered, I'm almost certain that whoever does it will not have lovingly carved a rifle ball just for me. Aw, so making that extra effort. Kinnear arrived home at 11am and Grace and James tried to act natural. James took care of the horse and Grace unloaded parcels in the wagon. Grace asked Kinnear if he wanted something to eat and Kinnear asked if there was any meat in the house. She replied that there wasn't because Jefferson the Butcher hadn't been by and Kinnear Im- immediately found that odd. Hmm. It's strange that Grace omitted this from her confession. This doesn't come from her, it comes from other witnesses. But during the trial, Jefferson said he actually did come by the house at his usual time that week, which was early Saturday morning. Normally, he took the meat order from Kinnear or Nancy, but this week Grace Grace greeted him at the kitchen door and told him that they did not want any meat that week. This was extremely unusual, as in it had literally never happened. And Jefferson asked to speak to Kinnear or Nancy. Grace replied that Kinnear was out of town and she didn't know where Nancy was, but regardless, they did not want any meat. Odd. If you don't want to come across as suspicious, don't be just suspicious. Give the usual, or just don't be suspicious. Like, yeah, we're not gonna want any meat, but like that's because everyone's dead. Yeah, are <laughs> gonna be. This dead. is like how to get caught committing murder one hundred and one. It doesn't even make sense for Grace to do this because I mean, obviously Nancy's dead by the time Jefferson swung by, which is why she didn't want him coming in the house, and she knew that they they were going to be fleeing so they didn't need meat but it doesn't really take a brain surgeon to figure out that it might be a smidge suspicious to not buy meat for literally the first time ever if you want someone mm-hmm. to remember you and remember that you were acting strangely act strangely absolutely that's like my main my main claim to fame it's not like she needed to know Kinnear's pin number to get this meat like servants bought things no. on their employer's behalf on the credit all the time they Absolutely. just invoice the employers later. Just buy the goddamn meat. No one would find it that weird if, like, one of the servants bought bought meat from them. No one find find that even the slightest bit. Strange. Grace is the one cooking the meals. It's like, so yeah, she knows what they like, need. Of course, she knows she knows what they need. But it's just that's just a deeply weird thing to do. It just like completely changed the order. Which is adding to my theory that I don't think Grace was particularly bright. I think one of my favorite sayings is about as useful as a screen door on a submarine. (laughs) So Kinnear also asked where Nancy was when he got home, and Grace said that Nancy had gone to town on the stagecoach. Kinnear also thought that this was odd because he just passed the stagecoach and he hadn't seen Nancy in it. 
The dude seriously did not read enough horror movies, horror novels. Yeah, yeah, like he is not picking up, he's not picking up the bad juju vibes coming rolling, rolling off of this Run, Kinnear, run. And the fact that, like, this is, again, like, testimony from his murderer or someone accused of his murder. Like, he's not testifying that he found this odd. Grace was like, yeah, he was weirded the fuck out. I did a bad job. <laughs> I am not good at this. So Kinnear asked Grace for some tea with toast and eggs and sat down on the sofa in the dining room to eat his breakfast and read a book. Grace returned to the kitchen where McDermott told her he was gonna go kill Kinnear right then and there. Grace replied, and I quote this fucking directly, Good gracious, McDermott, it is too soon. Wait till it is dark. Good gracious, not during daylight. You murder the fuck out of him after sunset. Yeah, like a responsible This is the fucking Ramadan of murder. What do you think we are? What kind of ramshabble establishment do you think we're running here where we just murder people in broad daylight? Wait till after we go to bed. Mm. McDermott complained that he would not be able to kill Kinnear at all if somebody else showed up. He mentioned that if a new man showed up, so I assume that they may have already hired his replacement. After dinner, Kinnear had a nap with his clothes on. I don't know why that detail's included but it is <laughs> heaven forbid you thought he was nude while he was i had to read that detail now you have to read that detail mcdermott wanted to kill him in his bed during the nap with grace's assistance she agreed once more to help him and then mcdermott changed his mind saying that he would wait until nightfall after all so kidneyer survived the nap and then woke up that evening to go into the yard grace also went outside and mcdermott followed close behind her as she walked around the premises she actually complained to him, Why, McDermott, if you follow me about so, Mr. Kinnear will think something. To which McDermott replied, How can he imagine anything except you'll tell him? Grace answered, I should not tell him anything. Which, it's really hard to decipher the relationship between Grace and James. Yeah, it's, it's, like, that just reads as, like, weirdly flirtatious? Which, because I'm reading it was flirtatious, it could be read as James was being a huge fucking grump and he was like, we're not fucking dating unless you tell him we are, bitch. Mm-hmm. You know? It, yeah, like, it, it could be, it could be either. It could be ironically flir- flirtatious or it could be just, like, explicitly, like, shut the fuck up. He's not going to think anything about it. Unless you tell him something. James could be annoyed, he could be threatening, he could be neutral. Uh, after the trial, the press portrayed the two of them as lovers. Explicitly. As mm. as murderous, proto-Bonnie and Clyde-style lovers. But this is the closest they come in, this te- in anybody's testimony. This is the only exchange that appears in either testimony that could be flirty. And even then, it's very ambiguous. Yeah, Grace does not mention being his lover at all. And uh, she's pretty explicit. I mean, like, she's she's putting in little tiny details like the fact that she hadn't bought meat, but she's admitting, if her and James were lovers, she's completely admitting omitting that from the testimony, which is mm-hmm. strange. Yeah, which is weird, because, like, again, she doesn't seem that bright. You're already in trouble or, for like, a murder? master manipulator. Yeah, when you're on trial for murder, no one cares if you've had a little premarital sex. Like, yeah, no one gives like, a shit. That is, like, the least of anyone's problems. But she's, she's not indicating how she feels about McDermott at all. She's just describing mm-hmm. him like he's a houseplant that happens to live in the kitchen. And murders people. Yeah, that too. I mean, don't most houseplants do that? Nom nom nom. Yeah, I mean, like the roommate and I just got a new got a new plant. We adopted our our first our first child, uh, and he's a 
plant of some kind that hangs from the ceiling, and his name is Herbert. I like your botanical knowledge. He is a plant of some kind. Definitely a plant. He is green and leafy. I've examined him from so all not angles. A succulent. Can confirm. Not a dog. Definitely plant. <laughs> Hasn't barked at me once. If dog, very polite. <laughs> Kinnear ate his dinner at 7pm, and as Grace passed through the main kitchen after clearing the table, McDermott asked her to go back into the room and tell Kinnear that McDermott wanted to see him so that he could murder him. Grace basically said, nah, and then went out to the back garden, uh, the back kitchen with the dishes. So, another fun history fact. In the 19th century, most wealthy households had a front and back kitchen, or a winter and summer kitchen, as they're commonly called. The front or winter kitchen was inside the main house, and the back or summer kitchen was partially or completely enclosed structure that was out back in the yard. So, uh, people are firing fireworks in El Barrio at 5.22 a.m. on a Wednesday. New York is- I guess they're still celebrating the end of uh, middle school. <laughs> Hooray! Um, yeah, the last night- yesterday was the last uh, day of public school here in New York City, so some little shit is up bright and early setting off fireworks. What a time and place to be alive. Uh, so summer kitchens were used to keep from heating the house up too much in the summertime because you didn't want to have fire in a hot house or to keep cooking <clears throat> smells out of the house. This is a period of time without refrigeration when people ate a great deal more organ meat than we do now. So cooking smells weren't always pleasant. Liver. Liver is vile at all stages of everything. I just, if I didn't need mm, it to literally keep iron. me alive, I would carve it from my flesh. But I need it. Be gone with you, regenerating blob of organ. Yuck. Smelly chores like laundry were often done in the summer kitchen as well. It's very rare to find an old house with an intact summer kitchen these days, but they do exist. So that's where Grace was during, I think, both murders. She was outside. Um, so while Grace was in the summer kitchen, she heard a gunshot from inside the house. She ran back inside and saw Kinnear dead from a gunshot wound on the floor, with McDermott standing over him. The double-barreled gun was on the ground next to the body. Grace tried to run out of the room, but McDermott called her back and said, Damn you, you come back and open the trap door. And Grace said, I won't. He said, You shall. After having promised to assist me, knowing that I had promised, I then opened the trap door and McDermott threw the body down. It doesn't I, take I, a lot of convincing I here. I genuinely don't know why he needs help with any of this. No. He doesn't. I mean, you just prop it open with a brick. Literally, accord according to Grace's testimony, you could have replaced her in all of these murders with, like, kind of a whiny brick. Yeah, a broomstick. Like, she's not... I just like that the conversation that happened between them. You shall. I shan't. You shall. Okay. <laughs> Alright, fine. Folds like some cheap, wet, damp toilet paper. She does. She is not two-ply. She is no, single-ply. She is one-ply. And not even like the kind back then that they had when it was it was pre-splinter-free you know splinter -free toilet paper. She is, She's full splinter. She is soft and papery. <laughs> Grace said that she was so frightened she ran out of the front door and onto the front lawn and then ran back around the house to the back kitchen. As she was standing in the doorway of the back kitchen, she said that McDermott ran out of the front kitchen and fired a shot at her, but missed and hit the door jam instead. And this is actually true. Sure, or at least the bullet was fired. When the scene was examined, a rifle ball was found embedded in the door jam, just like Grace said it would be. Points mm. for Grace. But, like, that's only- there's only, like, two bullets, so, like... I mean, somebody- something got shot at the door jam at some point, so... Yeah, I mean, like, he's gotta carve another one if he wants to fire at her again. <laughs> You really had to want someone dead at the time. 
you had to you had to feel it. You had to want it. It's not like today's murderers just, you know, going like, to the store, like, buying bullets, going to the store, buying bullets. Like, oh, I want to murder my own human ma- human 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 life. I want to take my own human life. Like, whatever. Like, people are like murderers today are just so entitled. You are uh, one quick trip to Home Depot away from just being the next Dexter. Oh, you just say that. <laughs> Oh, what a night this is for you. Murder, history, and a compliment. Just, I'm over the moon. (laughs) It's no bucket of live raw oysters at a lesbian club, but it's the next best thing. Oh, it's right up there. She says that she fainted after being shot at. Apparently, Grace Marks had a bit of a fainting problem throughout her life. She fainted frequently, although women at that time just sort of did that. This is what happened when you were malnourished and forced into undergarments that could double as siege weaponry. Yeah, so she she tended to faint at intense moments. So she says that she woke up to McDermott standing over her and basically asked him, like, not in so many words, but what the fuck was that for? And he said that he didn't intend to hurt her and had thought the gun was empty. Kind of a weird thing to do, buddy. Bit, bit weird. One, you have two bullets. Are you that bad at counting shots? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, you're like, you, I, I, I want you to guess how many bullets are in this gun. You know? <laughs> like, I don't know, because I didn't count. Like, wasn't there two? Like, you know, one, two? <laughs> this was before Sesame Street. It was a different time. Um, and also, <laughs> who fires an empty gun at somebody? Yeah, like, like, you know, even, like, if you're just, like, blowing off steam, there are better ways to do it. Like murdering your employer, which you've already done. Like, if you're not calm by now, I mean, are you ever gonna be? I mean, McDermott kind of had it cool together. It, buddy. He was worried that someone had heard the gunshots and booked it into the poultry yard with the gun. He told Grace that if anyone asked about the gunshots, he was just out shooting birds. And sure enough, mm. Joe Walsh, the flute-playing boy, came to the house and asked Grace where Nancy and Kinnear were. McDermott saw Walsh speaking to Grace and came over to intervene because he apparently did not trust Grace at all to not fuck this up. I mean, I wouldn't die. Me neither. It took her a real long time to figure out that her employers were having an affair when she literally slept in the same bed. Yeah, she doesn't seem that quick on the uptake. No. So McDermott told they claimed that Nancy had taken the horse and gone to visit a neighbor and that Kinnear wasn't home. Walsh then asked about the gunshots and he told him the poultry story. As Walsh was leaving, McDermott let Grace know that if the boy had gone into the house, he would have killed him too. He also told Grace the story of how he'd actually killed Kinnear. He had gone into the dining room and told Kinnear that his new saddle was scratched and he had to come look at it. McDermott then went into the harness room, which was in a corner of the indoor kitchen, and when Kinnear was walking across the kitchen toward him, he raised his gun and shot him in the chest at nearly point-blank range. So, not exactly the most dangerous game here. This wasn't really sporting. Yeah. This was pretty, like, like just off of shooting fish in a barrel. This is... Shooting rich dudes in a kitchen. Not. From there, they ransacked the house and loaded up the wagon with basically anything valuable they could find. Both of them went down into the cellar so McDermott could retrieve keys and money from Kinnear's body. Grace says that she did not see the body of Nancy Montgomery, although she knew that she was down there. She says that neither of them even mentioned Nancy at this time. Then at 11pm, the two of them set off in the wagon for Toronto. McDermott told Grace that they would head for the USA, and once they got there, he would marry her. In the confession, Grace specifically uses the phrase, I consented to go. She makes literally no mention at all about the prospect of marrying McDermott, just that she consented to go to the United States. Did she want to marry McDermott? Did she realize that she sort of had no choice? Was she afraid of him? 
We don't know, but she was she was down no to go idea. to Toronto and then New York State. She was she was up for that. I mean, road, road trip. trip sounds cool. I mean, I'm out of a job. Like I'm I'm at loose ends. It'd be nice. Go down and just have a good. But you got a wagon load of stolen shit, so life is peachy. Um, mm. They arrived at the city hotel in Toronto at 5 a.m. the next morning. Woke the staff up because again, different time, and had breakfast. Grace changed into some of the clothes that she'd stolen from Nancy, which is a theme, and uh, mm. she was a fan of that. Did not learn. No, she really liked Nancy stolen clothes. I think she was just in it for the dress. Say yes to the dress. Blam! Oh, God. They caught an 8 a.m. ship to Lewiston, New York, and arrived at 3 p.m. From there, they went to a local tavern and had supper at the public table, which is another time for another fun history fact. Public tables are another relic from yesteryear that we no longer have. Just like summer kitchens and newspapers and joy and hope. So back in the day, taverns didn't do room service or individual orders. Every evening, they would just ring a big dinner bell when dinner was ready and serve one giant supper for all the lodgers who were staying with them, as well as any travelers and local bachelors in the area who were too dumb to heat up food, I guess. Learning to cook is for women. It is for women. I would rather stop. <laughs> or just eat at a big table full of men. Delightful. Basically, they'd ring the dinner bell and you had to come running or you missed supper. I mean, that's just childhood, but you know. Yeah, that's just so, that's just so, like, back in the day. Back in the day when we had public tables, when we had, you know, servants. And murder. Murder and racism against the Irish. Better times. Oh, no, you can't say those words into a microphone. <laughs> I will not let you. You cannot record yourself saying that. <laughs> so, uh, McDermott and Grace got separate rooms at the tavern for the night because... That would be that would scandal. be improper. Which again makes it hard to tell if they were lovers or not because I mean you've already murdered mm -hmm. two people. Why do you give a shit if you stay together if you're not married? So yeah, and like this is literally at a time day and time where like you can just say that you're married. Yeah, no one's gonna fucking check. No one's gonna check. But I don't know. They got no one's gonna they ask. got separate rooms and Grace makes no comment on it or really any comment on anything. And before they turned in for the night, Grace told McDermott that she intended to stay in Lewiston and I guess like build a life there and would not go any further. McDermott told her that he would make her go with him. So he's already kind of a shitty husband. The honeymoon is over and you haven't even gotten married yet. It didn't actually matter much anyway, though, because the high bailiff, Mr. Kingsmill, showed up and arrested them at five o'clock in the morning and carted them back to Toronto, which is where Grace's confession ends. So... That's Grace's story, and that's where we're going to leave off for part one of the Grace Marks case. Because I need to go to bed. I do too. It, the sun has risen. It is daylight. But we have so much more murder to cover. So in part two, we're going to cover so much more James McDermott just cramming Grace right under a bus. Just get under there. Stay down. Just absolutely chucking her onto the tracks. Yeah, just flinging her in there. And uh, we'll talk about what happened during the trial and its aftermath. So... That's that's gonna be next week. Ooh, we got a whole. I'm looking forward oh, to it. Oh yeah, you get double dose of murder and Canada and history. All the best. This things. is a special night for Jessica and I. It's been delightful. I just everything you ever wanted. You know, the love is real. We are not a lesbian couple. I cannot emphasize that enough. Cannot stress that. We are, we are not dating each other. Absolutely not. No, just if you've ever seen that like small YouTube clip that went viral of just a sheep screaming. 
that's the noise that plays in my head when I think of being romantically entangled with Jessica. It's just, it is loud. It is, it is unending. Just, just the noise that a fox makes when you startle it, that like inhuman scream. That's, that's what plays in my head on a loop. Our love cannot be because I forbid it. I will banish myself. Because it simply is not. I will cast myself <laughs> to the bottom of the deepest ocean. Just jumping right into an active volcano. Behold me, Pele. I choose death. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this first episode of uh, Grace Marks. And you hope we hope you'll join us next week. Yeah, you better join us next I week. I have been Jessica. <laughs> Yeah, you better. You, you need to. You need closure on this. We're, we've left you, you need hanging. To understand. We've left you com- at the, on the edge of a cliff. Of a cliff. I was really hoping that you were gonna make a non-masturbation metaphor, and I'm glad that you went that direction. You're welcome. I'm here for you, babe. Ugh. Well, now I can't <laughs> go to sleep. Uh, yeah. This has been Jessica, and I have been Janelle, and we are fat, fat French, French, and, and fabulous, and not dating. At all. Absolutely not. Not dating each other. No. Oh, God, no. Gross. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Fat French and Fabulous, specifically for sitting through part one of our two-part Grace Marks murder extravaganza. We hope that it was worth the 90 minutes of your life that it took up and the 90 more minutes that it'll take up next week. We want to remind you to review the podcast. Reviews help people find us and join in all of our shared trauma and nightmares. Uh, So it's really important that you leave us a review if you like us. Uh, If you've got a spare minute, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes or on Facebook or drop us a comment on SoundCloud. Really, at this point, we're not fussy. Also, remember that if you like the podcast, you should subscribe to the podcast. You can subscribe to us pretty much anywhere that podcasts are found, whether that is on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever it is that you Android kids are using these days. Uh, Subscribe to us. We like it. Also remember to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook at Fat French and Fabulous. You can also find us on Twitter at Fat French Fab. And if you only like one of us but you're too shy to admit it, you can just follow one of our personal Twitters. I'm on Twitter at VeryBadLlama. Jessica is on Twitter at IAmNotAlungFish. Ideally, you should follow both of us because we post very funny shit on a regular basis, but I can't tell you how to live your life. I can tell you, though, that we'll be back next week with part two of Grace Marks. We'll see you then.